Welcome to the REC Parenting Podcast. I am Anna, the founder of REC Parenting. In this second episode, we talk with Jasser Martini. Jasser is an entrepreneur, and as of last year, he is the manager of Jay Blades, whom you may have seen in BBC programs, such as The Repair Shop and Money for Nothing. But above all, Jasser is the father of five children. One of these beautiful children was Margot Martini, who died in 2014 after being diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. Margot needed a bone marrow transplant, but finding a donor proved to be very difficult. Rather than just waiting, Jasper and his wife, Vicky, ran an incredible appeal to find a donor. A donor was found, and Margot received the bone marrow transplant, but sadly, she passed away a few months later, at the age of two and two months. As a result, Jasper and Vicky created Team Margot, a charity that campaigns for all of us to register as blood, organ, stem cell, and bone marrow donors. This year, Jasper was awarded a British Empire Medal in the Queen's Birthday Honours for services to stem cell donation. Although I am sure that Jasper wishes to never have received this award, it is a very well-deserved award. Enjoy the episode. Jasper Martini, welcome to our podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So Jasper, tell us a bit about your family, the one that you grew up with. What did you grow up with? Who with? So I've got mum and dad, who um, mercifully are still around, um, and two sisters. I'm the middle son, so I joke that I'm the favourite favorite son. <laughs> um, there were no favourites in our family. And mum and dad are very even-handed and level about that. And I wish I, that, uh, I hope I can do the same thing for our kids. There was no jealousy between us. There was no one-upmanship between me and the sisters. And they've been always that way. Uh, dad is from Syria and he's a bit Armenian. And mum is Scottish and Thai. So I'm rather mixed. My sisters and I are quite mixed in terms of our makeup and our heritage. But ultimately, I feel, whilst I'm British, born and bred in London, whilst I feel, I, I still feel a an Arab. I feel like I'm culturally an Arab and from the Middle East. And my my nose tends to give that away. Um, and my name as well, Yasser, is uh, is something that I, I've, I've struggled with initially as a boy when I simply wanted to be John or Peter. But... Um, Later in life, I saw there was an advantage of standing out <laughs> on the page when somebody said a name, and it was it was helpful. Um, did you ever feel different, Jasper, growing up, or did uh, you know the kids in the school make you feel different at any point? Nobody. I I felt different because my name was so obviously different. And through school, it was one of two jokes. Whenever my name cropped up, it was either Yes or Arafat, and people used to chuckle at that um uh, because the way he looked and and it was a sort of iconic comedy character in some ways to the children um and and martini anytime any place anywhere <laughs> i remember my school teachers sort of teasing me about so i felt i did feel different in the sense that for instance trick or treating it's october halloween comes around my parents didn't want me to go trick-or-treating. They saw it as a form of begging. And 
and I struggled with that a little bit. Um, I you didn't go. Or did you go? No, you I didn't go. go. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I wish, I wish I had, but I felt like I'd missed out, and and I didn't necessarily feel English. I feel British. I'm proud to be British. Harder to say that these days. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be British, but I. I never felt English, and I always felt that there was a difference between me and other kids. Later in life, I I didn't really experience racism, although there was a an issue in a nightclub when in, in my young early twenties, when I was moving through a crowded nightclub, and someone turned to me and swore at me and said, "You bloody foreigner," mm. and I took <laughs> I, I took a, a bit of umbrage at that, but otherwise, I've I've. I feel like I've fitted in and I've just got on with it. My father, interestingly, said when I was 18, have you thought of anglicizing your name? Oh. And I'd never thought of that. And I, by that time, I was shocked that he'd even mention it. My cousin, who's called Nabi, he changed his name, he's in America, to John. So he went as mm. John Martini instead of Nabi Martini. And my father wondered if I wanted to do the same. And, and by that time, no, absolutely not. But had he asked me at the age of five or six, I would have said yes all day, every day. It's just one of those things. Yeah, interesting. And what a, so tell us a bit, were your parents, uh, how, how would you describe them? Were they very permissive, authoritarian? Or were they very warm? How, how, how would you describe them? Always loving. There's a hierarchy in our family because I think of where my father hails from. He's the patriarch. Uh, my mum is mumsy, homemaker, cared for the children. And that broadly was it. And it was, it was the, whilst mum would try and discipline us, it was harder for her. And we used to run rings around her and it would be wait till your father gets home, a finger wagging. Uh, and we would get properly told off when dad got home either that evening or in the morning. Um, but um, that was, that was an understood, it was understood that that was the, the, the framework speak when you're spoken to was very much the message of the day going back. And, and I'm so pleased that we don't, we can change that. We can change that. We can break that cycle and encourage our kids. And I love it seeing our children talk about, whatever it is that they're up to and whatever they're interested in. I encourage them. Tell us now, tell us now about your family, the one that you have created. So we have had five children. Oscar is now 15, our eldest. We've got four boys. Um, Rufus is 14. They've both gone to a sort of weekly boarding school. Margot would have been 10. And um, we have Digby, who's seven, and Humphrey, who's coming up to five he's just started <laughs> big boy school so he's in reception and and for him i think it's i have a theory that uh that that female women are get they get better at making babies and i i swear our younger children will be bigger and stronger than our older children and with humphrey he is four but he thinks he's 14 He's got a 15-year-old brother, a 14-year-old brother. He's cock of the walk. He knows so much. <laughs> he knows all the chats. Yeah. I mean, he is an advanced prototype, eldest in his year group at school. So I think he's a he's one to watch. He's a terror. So what things are you doing similar to your to what your parents did with you? And what things have you changed or, or want to change? 
I think the clarity of knowing the rules and where the boundaries are is really key. And I'm happy to do that. I think that's really health, healthy. You know, if they know how, it's about attitude. Fundamentally, mm. I think it comes down to attitude. And we all have things that we enjoy doing and we don't enjoy doing. And when you do something you don't enjoy doing, well, crack on, guys. Do the best you can do. Knuckle down, put your head down, get on with it. Here are the rules. Here's the framework. And I'm far away from being a micromanager. I, I much prefer to give them the framework and let them do the best they can do. I'm much more a subscriber to the don't ask for my permission, but beg for my forgiveness mm -hmm. if if they go the wrong way. And I I hope that that's a better framework for them and that they flourish within that framework than the one that I grew up with, which was, I, you know, I was afraid of my father for until I was a young adult, which is not a healthy thing. I'd, I'd hope never to do but that. It, yeah, but it was it was that way at that at that time, right? It has changed. The way we raise children has changed a lot, right? Isn't that incredible that nobody thought that 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 was anything out of the ordinary? Yeah, exactly, it was the norm. So, yeah. and and with Vicky and I, we we have very different styles and very different ways of dealing with things. I tend to be the one that goes out and executes and does the does the do. Um, she's much more concerned about if the children, she stops them from doing something. She feels guilty about it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. When you became a father, did you come to it prepared? Did you read books? Uh, saw experts? I don't know. You know went no. on the internet? Or you just went with it? No. I went to um, the prenatal mm -hmm. sessions. And it was the first one you attend, and there's all the future parents there expectant and the latter ones i attended and i realized when i turned up that i was the only i was the only man there and all the other men had found excuses to not be there but <laughs> beyond that i had no pre-warning i didn't didn't think anything would change i mean how naive was that uh, i just figured that you know we would we would get on uh, but i i see now and i realize there are massive changes and there and i think women immediately have this instinctive thing that kicks in and it went from vicky thinking i was the apple of her eye and number one to me being a distant third and subsequently it's just just eroded from there so no i didn't i didn't prepare and i found it quite hard for the first year yeah it is hard the first year i think is always hard you need to totally readjust your relationship i find yes and and you need to be less selfish. I mean, frankly, we were so so fortunate and so selfish as young adults. Um, I don't think it's selfish. It's just that you don't have to think about anyone else but yourself. Correct. Right, when you have kids. And then suddenly when you have a kid, you know, there's this baby that someone needs to take care of him, right? So if the husband or the father says, you know, off, I'm go you know, off I go to with my mates, you yeah. know, you say, you know, what about me? I also want to go. Or maybe not. Or, you know, what about this baby? <laughs> right? Absolutely. So yeah, it's quite an interesting, um, quite an interesting process. Uh, yeah, becoming a, a parent. And if you have now, you know, do you ever have questions or doubts about how you're raising the children? Oh yeah. Do you ever go? Who do you ask? Do you ask your mom? Do you ask a friend? Do you go some? You know. 
It is sometimes the boy group that, I mean, women and men approach these things, I think, very differently. And so I find myself, I find I talk to other blokes about it when we're at the pub. I, I, I would love to record this conversation. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, mostly the, the conversation centers these days around devices and mm. what is and isn't permissible and what is and isn't acceptable. Yeah. Very hard because it, undoubtedly it's going to form a part of their futures. Mm -hmm. But the extent to which it happens is, is concerning. Mm -hmm. And the extent to which you see the change in behavior when you allow the children to do, you know, spend too much time on these devices we we've seen it you know we we had a red eye flight and none of us could sleep and we arrived back in the uk and i remember saying to vicky well let's leave them on the devices for a bit because if they fall asleep now it'll let's help them get through the day that was a mistake i mean the, their behavior by the end of the afternoon was was shocking and that was a big red flag it was just several years ago now but it was a huge red flag for us that this is yeah. not this has had a massively negative effect yeah i think also for our generation of parents it's difficult for us because we didn't we didn't grow up with those devices right so this no. generation of kids are the first ones uh that are being totally you know raised with devices so i think we find it difficult to know how much when what right and and People tend to do different things. So I think there's a lot of uh, yeah. We are we are digital immigrants in that yeah. way, and and people use that phrase. And I, I guess you can bed down and you can learn about it. It's just it's it's much more unfamiliar to us. You're right. Whereas they just grow up with it. And I remember being on a plane, and Oscar reaches forward to the entertainment system where the screen is yeah. and he starts trying to pinch it to make it go bigger and smaller. <laughs> and he thinks, daddy, this doesn't work. Um, you know, it's quite incredible. Yeah. The the time that it took to create that technology and, and yet they just, they just pick it up and, and it's intuitively there. Yeah. And you were saying, we were saying earlier, just about how uh, the way we raise children has changed a lot, right? You were talking about your father Years ago, decades ago, fathers were, were not as present in the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, raising of the children. How is it? How important is it for you to be present in your children's life? It is increasingly now, uh, and particularly since since um, since the whole episode with Margot, I stopped working in a full-time, committed employee employment role. Uh, sh shortly after Rufus was born. And so I've had much more flexibility in my day. And I frankly work my day around the routine. And I enjoy taking the kids to school. And I enjoy being with them pre bedtime, and we, you know, might go for a swim or something. Uh, I think, I think you can give too much. Mm. If you're not careful, you can have an unhealthy balance and do you know because whatever you give them they will take mm -hmm. they yeah. will they will always absorb more of mum and dad and i remember there was a time when oscar was playing football and i couldn't make that match to go and watch him i had something else on and he said afterwards daddy you weren't there mm -hmm. why weren't you there yeah. <laughs> As if, what could be more important than what did you play football yeah 
And that was again a one of those things that you just take away and think, oh, you know, might need to reprogram. Yeah. Stage. So I guess you never because many moms report feeling guilty, right? They say if I know if I'm not with the children, I feel guilty. Do you ever feel that way? Guilt if you're not with the kids? Generally, no. If I am taking, if I'm pushing it and I'm going on too many sort of boy trips away, then yes, I, I do. I, I came back from a boy trip over the summer early and left the rest of the crew because mm. it was Father's Day. And I was astonished nobody else was doing that. <laughs> but but nevertheless, I came back early deliberately so that I could be at home for Father's Day. Not, not, I wasn't trying to score points, but I knew it was important to them, particularly the young ones, mm. that uh, I was around. And and I think Vicky expected me to be back. So I didn't ask. I just did it. I think that caused a bit of an issue for the other guys. But there we go. That's their Probably. problem. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not go into that. <laughs> and tell us, Jasser, so you mentioned uh, Margot, your daughter. Tell us what happened to Margot. I'm sure many people will know your charity. Um, but for those who don't know about it, well, Margot was 14 months old, lovely little red-headed, pale-skinned girl who we, you know, we, Vicky's wanted a, a girl every time she's fallen pregnant. So one one out of five is a really poor hit rate, but but she was sick and we couldn't quite work out what it was that was making her unwell in spite of many visits to the hospital and to see doctors until it got to an acute point where she really didn't look and seem well. And we took her to a pediatrician who diagnosed, or his concern was that she had a distended abdomen and he, he was concerned she had a, a, a massing on her tumor on a kidney, a, a tumor on her kidneys. So he suggested to Vicky that we, she go straight home, pack an overnight bag and go to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And so that's what we did. Turns out Margot had leukemia she had a blood cancer the massing he was feeling on examination was an enlarged spleen which is what happens when you you have leukemia we later learned so margot needed um attention she needed treatment she she had two types of leukemia which made her extremely rare great ormond street hospital had seen three cases like margot in the last 10 years and they get all the basket cases and the prognosis was not good. So straight away, post-diagnosis, Great Ormond Street advised that Margot needed a bone marrow transplant, also known as a stem cell transplant, to stand the best chance of survival. At that stage, we didn't know whether she was going to make it or not. I asked the consultant at the time, you know, what are our chances? And, and he said nothing better than 50-50 after chewing on his pencil a little bit. I think he was awkward and I, I wasn't sure I believed him at that time. I thought I thought our chances were less good still. So after that, we, okay, I'm a practical guy. What do we need to do, doc? And it turns out that your tissue type, which is what we needed, we needed a, a stem cell or bone marrow donation, which is needing to be matched with a patient via their tissue type, also known as human leukocyte antigen, HLA. And so how do you find one of those? And a third of the time, 30% of the time, your siblings can match. But that wasn't the case. We, we had Oscar and Rufus tested. And so what you do is you then go to a, a register of unrelated donors. 
And I'd never heard of a bone marrow transplant before. I, I didn't know how people knew to go to the register. And along the way, we we ran an appeal because Margot's mixed heritage. I mean, Vicky, you know, my background, Vicky is is English and New Zealand, and I, I'm, you know, Syrian, Thai, Armenian, and Scottish. And so our children are from all over the place. And that was a key difficulty in finding Margot her donor match. So so that was that was the issue and that that really was the the genesis of the the charity and and of team margo and at that point you just didn't sit and wait you didn't say okay i'm going to wait right for the what did you do no and and a key factor was one evening i was on the ward at great ormond street hospital and one of the the neighboring cubicles was occupied by an englishman whose wife was chinese and their son mixed race son was at the end of a six-month window of waiting for a bone marrow donor, and they hadn't found one with the right match. And so the father looked really sad. And when I asked him, well, what's the issue? He explained, you know, I'm about to be the donor for my son, which makes me a 50% match only by definition. And it'll be a surefire way to kill or cure my son. And that hit me quite hard. And I immediately started thinking, well, 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 what else can you do to improve the chances? And he said, well, we might have gone and run an appeal, but the chances are vanishingly small. And this was later confirmed by various doctors that even if you do run an appeal for Margot, then the chances of you helping her directly are extremely slim. But Vicky and I felt that a slim chance was better than no chance. And so that's what we did. And that, that same evening, I started creating a video as a bit of collateral to to form the the center point of Margot's Margot's appeal. And you ran the appeal and you found a donor for Margot. Well, eventually we ran an appeal. It went it went international. It was one of those things that just gets picked up. Um, you could save a life, we said, and it could be our daughters. And we were doing this for Margot and for other people. It uh, eventually we didn't find Margot her donor. There was a donor on the German registry, a 21-year-old man who we had the privilege of writing to, sadly, an anonymous letter. would love to meet him one day. Uh, it has to be a two-way thing before that can happen. Um, and, uh, and so she had a transplant. It wasn't a perfect match. It was a 9 out of 10 match, which sounds good, but it, it, uh, it was what they called a suitable match. And, of course, it didn't work. Margot three or four months later relapsed and then and then died in October uh, 2014. So we had a, a journey. Margot had a, a year and a bit of treatment during which time things went up and down. And we're so grateful to, unspeakably grateful to the donor of her stem cells and also the blood and platelet donors because that gave us more time with Margot and it gave us hope. And that was time and hope that we simply wouldn't have had. And during that time, we saw Margot blossom from being a little toddler to to being um from an infant to being a toddler uh, and so we're very grateful for having had that time and then as a result of that drive that you did uh to find Margot donor you created team margo your charity that now what does it do now exactly the charity for those who don't know so team margo is there to it's a campaigning charity and we're there to educate motivate and inspire people to sign up as donors of 
not just stem cells and bone marrow, but also blood and organs, because along the Margot's journey, she needed a lot of blood and platelets. And she, and shortly before she died, Vicky had raised with me the prospect of donating Margot's organs, which at the time I was horrified by. I thought, crikey, hasn't she suffered enough? And Vicky said, look, just think about it. Um, just don't jump to any conclusions. Just think it through. And within a day and a half, two days, I'd come full circle and w- was of the view that, of course, we should donate Margot's organs if if we possibly can. Turns out there was some misinformation with a blood disorder like she had. It wasn't possible to donate any organs. But but the good thing is that we had had that conversation, Vicky and I. So we know where we stand. We know how we feel about it. If, heaven forbid, anything like that should happen again. Vicky's a much better person than me. And it was good that she flagged this with me because I would not have come come out up with that on my own. And during the, those months that Margot was in treatment and, and after one, once she passed, how do you cope with it? Because also, you know, you had to take care of Margot, obviously. You had to do all, you did massive amounts of research. You, I mean, you, you, you worked so hard uh, to help her. But you also had Margot's brothers, um at home how do you manage to cope with all all of those you know demands i think for me and it's different for vicky and of course it's different for the boys and the wider family you you have i think you have to start with feeling good about yourself sounds wrong good is maybe the wrong word but you you have to be able to live with yourself and and that was the first thing i mean we don't we don't blame anyone other than cancer we don't have a a, you know litigation with a hospital because of uh, mismanagement or gross negligence or anything like that at all it's um it's more a question of could we and did i feel personally that i had done enough at the time when it was necessary to do the best we could for our daughter and can i look myself in the mirror and and feel that hand on heart we did everything we could mercifully i'm satisfied that i think we did everything we could we made the right decisions we we went about it the right way vicky feels much the same um and so from there you can then start to worry about how you go forward of course grief is again it affects people very differently I went to see a psychologist um, during that time, partly to help me also to have a strategy because the family and the boys, five and six at the time, years old, they needed they needed guidance, they needed support yeah. as well, of course. And and that, what that taught me it was at least nine months of of psychology psychology therapy. Then was to acknowledge that we're all different. Mm-hmm accept it and then be compassionate because there were times when vicky and i came at things from very different points of view and we needed to overcome them uh, there was also times during treatment where we were under acute pressure and there was a particular moment where the phone rang and it was great ormond street hospital saying it's no longer now about the place of treatment it's now about the place of death and there was this discussion that i wanted to have with vicky 
because I was still clinging on to the hope that they might be wrong and that we might actually find a, a solution for all of this. The longer that Margot went on, and she was reasonably clinically well for, for months after being declared incurable in the June 2014. And, and so being or feeling like we were near the hospital was important to me. And Vicky simply wanted her at home. Mm. And we had a, a fairly robust discussion about that. And Vicky was started to leave the room. And I, I realized at, at that time, you can't leave the room now. We have to discuss this. We don't have the luxury of time. We've got to deal with this. And I could see that had I had we not talked about that there and then, it would have festered. It would have become an issue. She might have acceded to my request or I would have acceded mm -hmm. to hers. And then we've got a real issue that mm -hmm. sticks with us forever after and will probably ruin our, our marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, shortly after Margot died, someone who was trying to be helpful shared with me the the statistics on what happens to a marriage after child bereavement. And the statistics are not good at all. Oh, no, no. You know, the vast majority of people have a breakup. Yeah. And and so for me, that was the mode that I went into. It was how do we how how do we avoid a family tragedy becoming even worse by the family unit dismantling and coming unstuck? And so that was that was a key focus going forward for me, and it still is. I mean, we should all do this anyway, but until you're put in a corner like that, mm -hmm. you you tend not to think about it. You know, at the time, I remember writing about this. I, I wrote a blog, and there was one of those moments where, you know, we had a very limited period of time with Margot. So how do you spend your time? We decided the experimental treatment post Margot being declared incurable didn't work. So what we were going to do is spend time at home. Now, how do you spend a limited amount of time with someone when you know that it's a terminal situation? And in a less acute way, that's life. We're all going to die. And I remember circling around that in my head and writing about it because, well, we should all be thinking like that. We should all be thinking more, not, not to the acute sense that, you know, you've only got a, a few days or weeks, but, but actually the time that we have is limited. So prioritize and do what you think is important and be with who you want to be with and, and be true to yourself and to, to what that's all about so so i think that that's something that that you know we came out of all of that and looked at one another at one point and said we're never going to worry about the niche shit again mm -hmm. you know there are some small decisions in life and then there are some really quite telling big meaningful ones and and i i just refuse to let the little stuff get in the way anymore yeah that was a very important lesson that we all, often we forget but you talk about time and you you dedicate a lot of your time to Team Margot, right? What does it bring you, Team Margot? Why do you do it still after all these years? Well, the main reason is, well, I would love to tell you it's altruistic, but like I say, I, I think it helps me feel better. Um, it also helps other people. It gives me a focus because there are times when I, I, you know, I wonder whether it is actually a crutch for me. I have thought, in fact, re in recent days, we've had some advance notice from a study that suggests that matches of an eight and nine out of 10, which, you know, Marcos was a nine, and they tend not to use eight or nines unless they absolutely need to, 
um, those matches now, they've found a way in which they're getting really good, crisp data and results post-transplant survival rates are much improved oh, wow. through other ways. And so actually there is a chance now that we can pack up and go home mm-hmm. you know, in the in the foreseeable future, yeah. in the next five years, Team Margot Foundation may not be doing what we're doing today. I think there, there is a chance we could continue with the organ and with the blood, even, even if that, yeah. that does come come through. And we can continue giving grants to families caring for child cancer patients, which is another arm of the charity. But it it helps me. Fundamentally, it helps me, and I feel better about things as a result. That sounds like a huge vanity project. It isn't. It's uh, actually, we're trying to stay focused on on what we're trying to do, which is save and improve lives mm-hmm. through our work, through the charity work. But there is a personal side to it that um, that helps. And and I I I hope, you know, today is nine years since Margot was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And today I've just released the private blog that I wrote, yeah. made it publicly available for the first time. And, you know, I, again, that was a huge amount of therapy. We, we, what we found out very quickly after Margot was sick was that we had a communication issue yeah. and people were ringing, family, friends, work colleagues, broader people were ringing and contacting us and messaging us, all asking the same question, how's Margot? Yeah. And it was a distraction and we couldn't focus on the work of treating Margot and looking after our kids and keeping all the other plates spinning at the time. So we set up this blog. I, I, I wrote in it as a journal, sometimes multiple times a day with updates on what was going on. And, and we gave those details to people and said, there you go. If you want to follow, here's, here's, here's how to do it. Um, so I made that, we, Vicky and I have made that public today for the first time. And it's in the hope that it will help others yeah. cope a little better with what they're going through if they're caring for a child cancer patient. I'm sure it will help many, many people. I remember I hearing um, those posts that you did and how honest, how heartbreaking um, they were. And on that note, Jasser, I'm sure that there will be parents listening to the podcast that are sadly going through a similar situation um, that you had. What would you say to a parent that is at the moment has a, a very sick child or has just lost a child? Is there anything that you would tell them? And what may help them without, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's different for everyone again, but you do you do have to look after yourself, I think, first. It's that old airplane adage, you know, when the cabin pressure drops and the, the masks come down, put yours on first before you try and help someone else. Because if you if you fall and if you crumble and implode, then you simply can't help your child. And you can't help the people around you in the event of a bereavement. So I think that's that was that's the first thing. And and it's it's very difficult because it's so intimately different for everyone. But you can only do the best you can do, and you have to give yourself permission to be enough when it gets to that stage. And as my psychologist would say, be compassionate, mm-hmm. including to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, to yourself, I think, to be able to be. Yeah, compassionate to others. And one final thing. I know 
you're being very humble, Jasser, and I know that it's an award that you wish you had never received, but tell us about the award that you got. Was it last year or this year? This year. Actually, I go on the 18th of November to be awarded the oh, you're going there. British Empire Medal. Sadly, it's not King Charles or a senior royal. It's the Lord Lieutenant of London who dishes it out. It's a low-ranking award, the lowest, I think. But nevertheless, a gong is a gong. Um, it's a, it's a, it's good for the charity. Um, I, I'm, I don't have my chartered surveyor letters after my name, let alone BEM, but it seems now I'm entitled to it's, it's good in one sense. Uh, it's some recognition in another sense. I think my sister should have had one as well, but in another sense, it's, as you say, I, I would far rather be, um, playing in the garden with my daughter right now, uh, in, in preference to having to, um, to do the work of the charity, but but uh, it, it's it's I'm pleased. I'm very proud to have it. Absolutely, as you should be, and I think it's a very well deserved award. Thank you, Jasser. Thank you so much. I always tell you the same thing. I think you are a fantastic dad. We think about Margot often, and thank you very much for your time for being so honest. And I am sure this podcast will help uh, many other parents. Thank you, Anna. Good luck. Go for it. See you soon.